0: Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Reagan Canope. Welcome back to another episode of
1: the Oregon Bridge. When we redefine the future of our economy, not only in the region, but in the state, let's just be shameless and let's just be proud of this really wonderful ecosystem and all of the opportunities that it could bring for people that live here, for people that want to travel here. With the way that... The public sentiment is around the region. What we've looked at is, well, you know what? We're really leading the world in some of these areas. Good things usually don't happen by accident, and there's a lot of careful planning.
0: All right, folks, we have a very fun episode today. Today, we have Metro Councilor Juan Carlos Gonzalez. You probably heard our previous episode with Metro Council President Lynn Peterson, so hopefully you know what Metro is. And in this episode, we talk with Juan about all sorts of issues, land use, urban growth boundary, talk about chips. We talk about housing and homelessness. We talk about sports and the economic role that the athletics industry plays. Reagan brings some polling to the table and some receipts of previous Transportation comments that Councillor Gonzalez made. And I think the reason why I think it's fun, Reagan, is because Juan is like the same, we speak the same language, right? We're kind of of the same age cohort, young ish people in politics. And I thought it was a really cool conversation. What did you think?
2: Yeah, I had not met Juan before. And so I really appreciate this opportunity to talk to him. I think the two things that I noticed about him specifically are that he was thoughtful, a public official, and that he's pretty passionate. And I think those two things are a really good combination. And kind of regardless of your political ideology, I think we just need more of that in Oregon politics, because I don't think I think if you have people who are dispassionate about issues, ultimately, they can sometimes arrive at the wrong conclusions. And if they're not thoughtful, I think they'll be too quick to rush to what sounds like the easy silver bullet option of which there's none. Public policy is 100 percent about trade offs and which tradeoffs you want at any given time. And so I appreciated that about him.
0: Yeah. And Reagan, you mentioned this before we were recording this, but like Juan's really good at explaining how he thinks about complex issues, which I think is actually even more useful for listeners, like including myself, frameworks for how to think about complex things, which is really useful in politics. Enjoy the episode, stick through it till the end to see a remarkable moment where Reagan Canope nails the most obscure trivia question I've ever heard. Just an amazing thing to witness. So hopefully you'll enjoy that at the end. Otherwise, thanks again for listening, and enjoy this interview with Metro Councilor Juan González.
1: Harang Long PC has always recognized that achieving our clients' goals sometimes requires a change in the law. And in other situations, clients need help stopping or changing proposed amendments to the law that put their interests at risk. For decades, we have played a role in shaping Oregon law on many subjects, from narrow regulations to major policy changes implicating billions of dollars. Our lawyers work with clients to draft legislation, prepare legal opinions and testimony to share with legislators, coordinate with professional lobbyists, and work directly with policymakers. To learn more about Harang Long's policy and politics practice, go to harang.com. That's h-a-r-r-a-n-g.com.
0: All right, Counselor Juan Gonzalez,
1: thanks for coming on the pod. What's up, guys? So happy to be here on St. Patrick's Day, the day we're recording, and just to get to talk about some cool stuff.
0: And our viewers on YouTube will be able to see that I'm wearing green and you're wearing green, but Reagan does not appear to be wearing green. So I have green socks. Okay, we'll take your word for it. Okay, so Juan, I was reading your newsletter and your last newsletter was about sports and we're in the middle of March Madness. So that feels he is wearing green socks for our our listeners. So let's talk about sports. There's a quote that was in the newsletter that I thought was hilarious that says, Oregon designs what the world wears when it sweats, which I think is actually pretty much correct. But can you talk a little bit about the role of athletics in the regional economy and why you're excited about it, why you're a booster of sports?
1: Yeah, well, first and foremost, some context for people. You know, as a Metro counselor, one of the roles that we feel compelled to and that we see as our role as Metro in the region is supporting economic development, supporting tourism, culture and arts through our major venues in the Portland area. And sports happens to be one of those really big things that just seems to happen in our economy. And obviously, we have some major employers, we have creators, we have designers. And with this, with a big project that we have going on right now around the Expo Center in North Portland. We're actively looking at opportunities for revisioning that site. And with the way that the public sentiment is around the region, with the general sense of, you know, we need to get back on track. We need to focus on our strengths. What we've looked at is, well, you know what? We're really leading the world in some of these areas. Are we really pounding our chest and bragging as much as we can? It's something I've been just asking myself a lot. So so this newsletter that I put out the other day was just a matter of, hey, you know what? Like, we are really good at this. And when we redefine the future of our economy, not only in the region, but in the state, let's just be shameless and let's just be proud of this really wonderful ecosystem and all the opportunities that it could bring for people that live here, for people that want to travel here. And that's just kind of the, the background. You're on the board of Sport Oregon. Is that right? Yes, sir. So what is
0: Sport Oregon? And is it like the economic side of like the athletics industry? And what do you do on the board?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, just like any board member, I go to board meetings and, uh, <laughs> you know, work with work with other people in the industry that feel really passionate about the sector. I think Sport Oregon does a lot of different things. But from my vantage point, the value of Sport Oregon is that it provides a focus point for our region to be able to go out and compete for, you know, some of these major tournaments and competitions and bring mm-hmm. them here. So the, you know, the newsletter, we highlight that the 2030 NCAA women's final four will be in Portland. That was a lot of hard work on part of the sport Oregon team. We have a a remarkable accomplishment in Portland that we've never hosted an NBA all-star game, which is like, you know, g- kills me soft <laughs> Every time I remember that, you know, someone that grew up here, Big Blazers fan, big soccer fan. That with all of this industry and leadership that we have in the world, with Nike, Columbia, I mean, you name it. Like, why, why haven't we hosted it? Like, that's it's kind of ridiculous. So, totally. uh, it's a good reminder that things, good things, usually don't happen by accident, and there's a lot of careful planning, a lot of alignment of leadership across sectors, and I see that as sport Oregon.
0: I'll give a quick, quick number excerpt from your newsletter, just to put a finer point on it. You're quoting the Portland Business Alliance's State of Sport report. They say that Oregon is home to 51,000 jobs and 3,100 businesses in the athletic outdoor team and recreation ecosystem. Those are big, big numbers for that industry. And I also realized that we skipped our usual first intro question. So I'm going to go backwards, which is (laughs) before you were at Metro... How did you first get involved in politics? And was this something that you always knew you wanted to go down this road? Like, what was your first entry point into the political world?
1: What was my first entry point? Well, you know, dear listeners won't be able to hear our prep chat before <laughs> this, but don't worry, I'll pop the balloon and let everyone in it's secret. We were talking about Boys State, you know, the, 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 the statewide program that happens across the country throughout different states. And that was really my foray, I think, into, into this space. Like, honestly, I haven't really even told a lot of people this, but before that I wanted to be an architect. Like, no, no, for real. I, and I, I forget that. And I wanted to go into like construction or engineering or something, something that had to do with like the built environment, which makes sense why I ended up at Metro eventually. But this boy state program and like all the kind of competitiveness, but also the camaraderie and the experiment just really opened my eyes and ultimately made me want to get more involved in that. It then led me to apply to Georgetown, which then I went to school there and got my government and economics degree. And before I knew it, you know, the seed was kind of planted at that point in time. What I didn't know was how early in my adult life it would happen that I would be involved. You know, I think for me, it's just like, well, you know, at some point in my life, I would love, I would love to. uh, And I think I was presented with a a sliding doors moment. And I just walked through a door that was there and happened to win. And here I am now on a podcast with two great guys. So yeah, before we run over that, why did you decide to run
2: for Metro and kind of what drew you to that particular role? Because I think it's it's a little bit unique, not just in Oregon, but across the nation there's not very many of these kind of hubs that deal with so many of the different issues. I mean, it's not just it's more than just transportation, which is a lot of what people think of Metro, but
1: Yeah, well, you know, I'm feeling like an open book today. So I'm going to share things that I don't usually share, which I think is a good thing about podcasts. Um, we love that. Yeah, so for me I did not know Metro until I started at my first job out of college, which was at a nonprofit named Centro, based out of Cornelius. And around that time, so I graduated in 2015, and in 2016, the Metro Council at that time had adopted a strategic plan to advance racial equity. And basically what that did was it, it gave the staff a mandate to go work in communities, you know, whether it's like a master plan or it's a plan or just like something that's required or not, you know, a regional transportation plan, you name it, staff now had this mandate to go out and work with communities to get feedback and inform, you know, like what are the nuts and bolts of these plans that inform how the agency spends money, allocates resources, how staff focuses its time, where the agency puts its political capital. So I actually started working at Metro, working with Metro as a central employee on a park they bought a few acres it was like over a thousand so it's not a few outside of forest grove they wanted to build a park there and they're like okay well you know what does the latino community think about you know building this park and that was from there it was history got involved in that project and then before you know it you're like on six committees and other projects when you're involved and you're interested people are like well come over here come over here And it was kind of great because I got to learn a lot and I really got to know Metro from the staff side and the people that I got to work with and the vision and the kind of the dreams that they had for the projects they were working on. And I was like, you know what, this feels like a really mission aligned, mission driven agency. Mm -hmm. I want to be a part of that. And eventually when the opportunity came to run for office, I said, yeah, you know, I really like this work. When you were elected, you made history in a couple different ways. You were the, I believe, the
0: youngest Metro counselor elected and also the first elected Latino counselor in the history of Metro. Obviously, race, identity, equity, and inclusion are hot topics in the political space. And you talk about this quite a bit. You talked about it during your campaign, the importance of elevating the voices of historically underrepresented communities, just on a personal level. Can you talk about how your background or your identities have shaped the way that you approach the role of a Metro councillor? Like, why does that matter from your perspective?
1: Well, yeah, and, uh, I appreciate the question. I think all of us from our, we we have different identities that we carry through our lived experience. And I think that a good elected body is like a constellation of a lot of different lived experiences and identities when i was first elected i felt like i kind of <laughs> i stuck out like a sore thumb in terms of what felt like the the potential lived experiences of what i interpreted at that time the council today is is a lot more reflective i would say of of the region but i think that in a lot of ways what what my lived experiences have brought me is the ability to connect with issues on a level of empathy, not just like an intellectual level in terms of, you know, raw outputs or raw outcomes that we're striving for in a policy, but instead trying to, you know, dig a little deeper where we can have an impact and influence on an issue that might be harder to measure. And those are the areas where I look back and I feel the most proud of the work that I have done as a Metro counselor. So an example with this park that we are working on, right? The one that I first got involved in, that was like, what, 2016, I said? The park just opened last year. So it took six years to really go through the full planning process and then construction and then you know permitting all that good stuff. And there's just marginal things that feel like insignificant, but they make a big difference. Originally, the plan for that park, Chehalem Ridge, was to have trails, pretty standard trails, narrow around a, a collection of different important sites that highlighted the conservation and things like that. After the engagement, like small tweaks were made that just made such a big difference. For example, the community said, well, you know, when we go to the park, we go in groups of five or we go in groups of six, we go out with our families because it's an opportunity to get away from the built environment. It's an opportunity to bond. And so Metro said, okay, well, we'll make wider trails, you know, and that kind of Mm. set a new benchmark. And because of that, you know, Metro also decided to make different family experience at parks than we're usually used to, especially on the West side for Metro assets. And so added things like, you know, gazebos and shelters and things like that, and different education points for different levels of age and things like that. So I look back at that project and I think those are the kind of the nuances. I think that, you know, I'm like, wow, well, I feel like I see my work reflected in that even before I was an elected official. And you know, it's, it's what keeps the hopes high when things aren't easy. You know what I mean? 100%.
2: So I want to ask you, and I apologize if we were better podcast hosts, we would have sent this to you in advance and ask you to like, look at it. But hopefully you've seen the stories in the Oregonian about the poll that DHM did this month that they released this week that talks about housing and Oregonians views on housing. So, if you haven't read the exact poll, I'll kind of read you a, a few key points from it and then I kind of like to get like your feedback in terms of what you think it says about where Oregonians want to go on housing and homelessness mm-hmm. and I think to a deeper extent if it's really the job of elected officials like you, maybe like Ben, to maybe go against some of what they're seeing in this polling in order to get What we need in terms of housing. I kind of think it's interesting. So the numbers are 53% think the economy is getting worse, 37%, which is a high since 2016 when they asked this question. Oh, I'm sorry. Actually, 2017 is 39%, but 37% say their housing situation is not affordable. And 34% of of that total say they couldn't cover a $1,000 emergency. And then Oregonians are kind of split, but on whether their home values going up is good or bad, but 70% say it's bad time to buy a house and then you get down to building. And for the most part, Oregonians don't, I'm looking for the exact number here, but basically the read of it was from the Oregonian that 40% want to slow home construction in their community while 28% believe the rate of construction should remain the same. And so that's 68 percent of Oregonians who want either the same amount of production, which we've been told is Mm -hmm. too low or less production of housing, which would kind of make our housing crisis worse in a lot of ways or at least make the prices worse. Right. So like what's the response for an elected official who deals with housing in their community and how are they supposed to respond and take these numbers or these sentiments that go with them and then respond to them with public
1: policy? Those are definitely some good numbers. Yo, Ben, I, I'll share some thoughts on it. Definitely. I've got some,
0: yeah, I've got some responses. I haven't seen the polling either, but I've got some responses too.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, I I guess what I would say is like not surprised first. The issue of housing obviously is really complex. And I think one people connect to in different ways. From my vantage point at Metro, which granted is not, you know, the legislature. It's not Congress. It's, you know, more of a municipal focus in terms of you know, long-range planning, land use, and things like that, I have felt this really strong call to, you know, one, address the crisis as a crisis, and when I say the housing crisis, I mean the whole spectrum of rentals, single-family, duplexes, triplexes, etc. and I think, in general, as elected, we've done an okay job at one highlighting that there is a crisis. What I feel like we've really lacked the ability to do is communicate a clear and articulate plan as to how we do that. You know, granted, we've had very great voter support locally for a supportive housing services measure to address homelessness, affordable housing bond in 2018 for over $600 million. And those programs have been very successful But what we need to do a yes and we need to be more aggressive with how we unlock the land capacity that we have within the urban growth boundary. We need to be working to reduce the administrative burden for jurisdictions to be able to produce more. And that's just I mean, that's a whole other conversation for today. But I just really have this strong sense. And Ben, I'm curious to hear how you feel, how we need to create an environment for both the public and the private sector to be able to address the shortage in supply and that is both government stepping in to create the deeply subsidized units but also creating the regulatory environment that allows us to meet the unit gap i mean depending on who you ask that gap is 20,000 50,000 100,000 units all we know is it's in the five digits plus plus. and most of the things that we've done i think they they feel good you know like oh yeah you know we're addressing it but are we actively setting up a long-term healthier system to catch up and then to stay ahead? I don't think we are. But Ben,
0: I agree with basically everything you said. And Reagan, you're going to be forced to answer this question too. Just so you know, after this, oh, let's go. Um, <laughs> oh, let's what, go, I, what I think we should do about housing. My first response is actually like about polling because I think like yes, those a those numbers are not surprising to me. But I also think if you asked. Oregonians, do you think everyone should have an affordable place to live? I think that would be overwhelmingly popular with Oregonians. And I don't think you can achieve that without building a significant number of new units. That's just a truth. That's just a reality. The polling is also an average across areas, right? So I think like different communities might have different perceptions about building. And I think the word community in and of itself has different meanings to different people. Do you Mm -hmm. mean like my neighborhood or do you mean like in Tigard where there are areas that have been set aside for years for additional development and where I think Metro just recently approved additional housing to go in? So I think the polling shows us something and I think it is missing some context or that there's additional context that might paint a different picture. But I think the inescapable reality is what voters identified as, I think homelessness was often the number one or number two issue during the campaign. I don't think that in the long term we can systemically address homelessness without more affordable housing, and I don't think you're going to have more affordable housing without additional units. So those are just like my those are my beliefs. But Reagan, tell me where you think I'm wrong, or just come out well, and say I'm right about everything.
2: Ben, uh, you're right about everything. Is <laughs> cool. um, no, I think you're right. I mean, the governor laid out this goal of thirty-six thousand units. And I think that that's the right goal because that puts us back on a trajectory to get through the backlog that we have of housing. And I think that the backlog is a combination of things. It's a combination of cities. It's a combination of our laws not being up to date with the need to speedily move housing. And then it also, it is part of this relook that's happening at the legislative level to some extent about how aggressive I think we're kind of turning the knobs on the land use system, right, and trying to decide, you know, we the knobs have been dialed pretty heavily towards public input and the public being able to say we don't want building here. Well, that's resulted in this backlog. And so I think what is trying to happen is they're trying to turn the dial a little bit the other direction and say, OK, for now, the need today is we need a little bit more development. Part of me just wants to scream, no one else should ever move here. We're sorry. Oregon is full. (laughs) So so Reagan. Um, I actually, the other day, I was like, we should just, Republicans should just go full Tom McCall and say, do not move here. And maybe that's just because they're mostly coming, you know, from California and voting like Democrats. But, um, (laughs) you know, I think that there's something to be said for, there was a local land issue out here in Albany, nearby where I live, or it's nearby Albany. And it was a city wanted to turn, wanted to do a land swap. And they wanted to take this land that had already been developed and swap it out of the UGB for land to come into the UGB that was farmland that would then be developed into a paper mill. And the community across the board was like, um, no, thank you. And it didn't matter like what their background was. It didn't matter if they were conservative or liberal. They were all just like, the whole community was like, no. And then And then it didn't happen. And so part of me is like, there's parts of the land use system that you like. And then sometimes you're on the other side of those parts and you're like, oh man, this sucks. And it's really hard to design a system that works for everybody. And I would love to say, I would love to be out here and say, we need no land use planning. Stop trying to manage everybody's lives. Ben, stop trying to centrally plan every aspect of our lives. Just let us live. But you do have this challenge where there's a whole community that's like, we don't want this. And then it just happens. And it's like, But that doesn't sound democratic to
0: me. So, first, I do have to point out for our viewers, I have a new piece of artwork in the background here. This, my grandmother received this as a gift. When Tom McCall was governor and it's a cross stitch of the American Gothic. Oh, and that's above, so good. And above it, it says, it says keep out of Oregon, which is an <laughs> allusion. It's an allusion to the Tom McCall visit, but don't stay. They were like, it was from a national magazine. I think it was from like Life magazine. There was this like they're kind of mocking McCall in Oregon for being basically like isolationist. But that actually <laughs> is a is, is my next question, Juan, for you, which is, and this is something like I've been trying to th- I think I've even said this on the pod like 3 times over the last 2 years like land use planning i find really interesting and really important and really complicated and it is in the center of the Oregon politics world for two major reasons right now one being housing there are folks who say We have to release the pressure valve and land use planning is getting in the way, or it makes it take too long, or there's not enough land available, or whatever the critique is about the system. They say land use planning is contributing to our housing crisis. I think Reagan would probably agree with that perspective. And then it's also the center of the semiconductor conversation about, like, well, we don't have enough space big enough for what people are looking for. And of course, for both of those arguments, there are folks on the opposite side who say a couple things. One, starting point, all the things we love about Oregon, including some of those economic numbers we talked about in the outdoor and sports recreation, that only exists because of land use planning. And two, actually within the land use planning system, there's plenty of opportunity for growth and development. It just has to be done in a controlled and specific way. So that's my current understanding and summary of land use. You're sort of like in the middle of it at Metro. You're central to... (laughs) So all of this. So I guess sort of on a philosophical level, but also on a practical level, like how do you conceive of land use planning and the benefits and limitations or the role that it plays in the Oregon policy scene?
1: Damn, what a question. This, this is a great a chat. one. <laughs> well, I, I will say I do believe in our land use system. And I also believe that it can be more nimble to meet the needs of what we're facing and, and that we know we're going to face. And I think that value is inherently reflected in the recent decision that you're talking about, Ben, which is what's technically called the River Terrace 2 mm-hmm. land swap. Basically, you know, what happened is that I do want to start off by saying that sometimes I feel like some people describe the Oregon land use system as this like relic, decades old, But in reality, I mean, it's not a book on a shelf collecting inches and inches of dust. You know, it's updated nearly every session by nearly every MPO across the region. And, you know, nonetheless, you know, like anything that exists, continuous improvement is really important. And I think the same thing applies to Metro that the UGB and its application has varied depending on the leadership at the time. So uh, I think most listeners might or might not be aware of You know, 20, 25 years ago, the Damascus decision, which brought in a lot of land in Clackamas County, thousands and thousands of acres to be developed into industrial land and and thousands of units of housing. And that land has laid idle since.
0: What's the explanation for that? Like what I know that this is a whole thing, but can you kind of what is the like, how did that happen?
1: (laughs) I'm still trying to figure that out. You know, I think I. When I hear, you know, agencies say like, oh, you know, we were so successful at planning, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there's always these little things you can look under the cushions and and <laughs> find the blemishes, right? I think that at that time, there was this like desire to create regional parity and say, okay, you know, Maluma County has this, Washington County clearly has, you know, the intels and and has been successful. You know, we got to make sure Clackamas County gets gets the next bit. And you know, for multiple reasons, just hasn't been. It just hasn't been able to to gain gain legs. Whether that's because we don't have the right transportation investments to unlock the industrial land there. It's also like the soil type, and it's just like really hard rock, and it's hard to it's hard to dig deep for industry and things like that. So mm-hmm. you just kind of start thinking about the things. People try to kind of whale something into existence, and and it didn't work. So with this tiger decision. What we ended up doing was we ended up swapping, and this is the first time in the history that Metro in Portland has ever done this. Cities and other MPOs across the state have done it, but it was the first time for us, and it was a big deal. Where we basically swapped out land from the UGB in Damascus to bring in land in in Tigard, and as you can imagine, a lot of narratives form around that. You know, like, oh, you know, you're taking away to give to someone else, et cetera. I've always tried to like just not even engage in that and say, to me, it's more so of like we're just updating the accurate label of what something mm-hmm. is. It hasn't been developed in 20 years. It's not going to be developed for another 20 years. But over here, we have land that's ready. So some of the drama in the background as that decision came up was that originally the UGB in in the Portland metro area is really managed by a formula and a forecast that basically weighs the most basic way to describe it is available land and from that available land how many units can realistically be assumed to be produced within that land it turns out fancy number they're like okay you know well you know we we need 30,000 units well those 30,000 units are already here for multiple reasons you know people will argue with those numbers if they're true or not so coming back to this tiger thing you know the formula and the forecast was pointing towards you know we don't actually need to bring in this land at the tiger and things like that And me, as one of the Washington County reps, you know, worked pretty hard to say, well, you know, we're in a housing crisis and we just kind of need every lever. We need to say yes to as many things as we can to bring the necessary variety of housing supply and housing option for super long answer. Sorry, guys. No, no. This is why um, we have a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> there's, no, there's
0: no 30 second soundbites. Yeah, the, yeah the,
1: darn, the, darn, the you mean, darn. You know, <laughs> go talk to my comms guy real quick. <laughs> and so ultimately, that was also another example to me where I can look back and say, you know, formula and a forecast putting out is one thing. But at the end of the day, you know, we have an elected body that helps to then calibrate and bring in. The actual kind of the what's happening on the ground versus, I mean, it's not like we're having Chat GPT or you know <laughs> some, some algorithm this, the, just decide policy for us and say, well, you know, that was the most fair thing at the time that this forecast said. So, you guys don't worry, our land system is not Chat GPT. Just, just <laughs> telling the listeners here, don't worry, don't worry. I mean, like I, I really think about that all the time, and this is a tool that we have, and it's a tool that we need to be able to use and not be afraid to use it to its maximum output. It's a rule that I think has been kind of sacred for a lot of people. But again, I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm a millennial. I'm like, yeah, you know, cool, cool (laughs) rules. Rules are meant to be broken.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So real quick follow up, Reagan, before you change gears here. One, I'm curious what you think. So the like very high level overview that I know you're familiar with is like, federal government passes chips act just a ton of money gets allocated at the federal level now there's this like frantic scurrying in states across the country trying to make themselves competitive and eligible to receive a chunk of this federal investment by you know sort of cobbling together state resources and local resources and private resources trying to get commitments from companies and importantly trying to find land that could be used for projects i don't know if you've been following the conversations happening at the state level, in particular, there's a, a concept I'm curious, like kind of how you think about. I don't think they're calling it supersiding. Maybe they are. Ma- Reagan, you probably know more about this than I do. But this idea of like they are calling it citing the governor, as who is the they, who is
2: they, Reagan, <laughs> everyone on the <laughs> <Who> committee, <is? laughs> uh, all of the people when we talk about the bill.
0: All right, very cool, cool. So, so, so the governor having the ability to sort of like unilaterally is probably not the right term because I think there's some like checks and balances even within- The governor her-
2: has to look at a series of requirements. It's gotta be contiguous with current UGB. There can't be any other lands in the UGB that fit the criteria they need. They have to hold a public meeting and a public comment session and a couple of-
1: days. So, It expires by the end of 2024. Yep. You know Yes, that. exactly, exactly.
0: So this is an example of, it's an interesting example because it, it is a clear- deviance from the system of land use planning like very clear like opposite direction of what tom mccall imagined not opposite but different from what he imagined when he helped propose this or i guess pass this vision and it also seems to be again like this once in a generation maybe once in a lifetime moment to access this thing that you know like we, we did a vikatia podcast where like Vicatias. is and the, his cohort, their vision for the high-tech industry is partially why Washington County looks the way it is now. Like, this is one of those, could be one of those moments that we look back on in 50 years and be like, wow, good thing we did what we did then, which might not be possible in the current system. So what? how are you thinking about the trade-offs of this, like, exciting
1: conversation? And can we, like, w- can I just pretend I don't know anything so we can move on? No. <laughs> 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 I think when I hear once-in-a-generation opportunity, that, like almost makes me take a pause and not be so dogmatic and Mm. then think about, all right, well, what are the opportunities and like any good negotiation, set your conditions, you know, and then, and then hope that eventually those negotiations can achieve some kind of equilibrium with all parties involved. I don't know how to define my stance on like the history of the Metro and the Metro Council. I would say I'm non-traditional from what people expect from a typical Metro person. And so for me like you know I'm not a no from the get go you know obviously the the areas in the state that are like the leading candidates I mean those are contiguous to my district and so it's just kind of also hard to ignore the you know the economic benefit and also the the costs that it would give to people that it impacts directly here so it feels really close to home which is which is what I'm trying to say so There's two things, and it kind of depends on when you ask me and what my mood is, how I feel, (laughs) because the, I mean, the first, and this is kind of more on the meh side, it's like, well, you know, we're trying to have this, you know, one of the main things that I felt stood out during this last governor's race was, you know, how do we make sure every corner of the state has a successful economic development strategy that is not just focused in the urban core? This strategy will focus a lot of the next decades, major economic and employer growth in the urban core. So like that to me feels like a disassociation with with what I'm hearing as well from people across the state. And then, you know, it's just like, is it fair? You know, I think that's a question I ask myself At, at the end of the day, you know, capital and the economy, you know, are they fair or do they just take advantage of the opportunities that are present? So I guess that's another question, right? But in general, I do think that with this once in a generation opportunity to like supercharge us, and I just desperately, I feel like our region needs a win. Like uh, our our state needs some wins. We need to feel like we're reversing that, those polling numbers to say that, you know, we are on the right track. And that's kind of why I sent out that sport newsletter earlier. It's like, well, you know, we already have some wins. Like, let's just keep, let's just keep piling on the wins and kind of define our future part of also why I feel like our region and, and sorry, Reagan, that I'm so region centric, but it's just kind of like, it's, it's (laughs) it's my life here. You know, it's also that I feel like we're in these growing pains of going from a medium sized city and region to large city and region that Mm. plays on the global, on the, just on the global scene more. And there are things that you lose as a part of that. And there are things that you gain. And I think we're struggling with, like the reconciliation of that really big transition coming back to this like land use and industrial thing though, you know, I think that, you know, if we're going to uh, temporarily pause the rules or create new rules for this small window of time, then like, let's make sure that we're getting the most out of it. Let's make sure we're landing the next big it, you know, not just add land to put some data centers and, and distribution hubs, which are land intense, and sure, there are, there could be an okay number of jobs, but like, if we're going to pause the rules, then let's make sure it's something transformational. If not, I kind of start losing my interest in doing it. So that's kind of my bar. You know, if we're going to do it, let's try and be transformational. Let's try and do something incredible. But if it's kind of in the medium sake, then I don't know if it's worth it. That resonates with me really strongly. Let's go, let's go. Red Bull. <laughs>
2: You talked about being non-traditional in a way. So I want to read something that I think you said.
0: Oh, um, no. We're and this like is different. back.
2: Yes, here we go. We're we got go, the receipts. We got
0: receipts. We got the receipts. Reagan, stop. <laughs>
2: 2021, you're the only Metro counselor to vote against major freeway expansions. You say, <laughs> I question these projects, given the information that we have now regarding our need to act or climate future and prioritize communities that have been deprived of infrastructure investments. To me, these highway expansions represent an old way of doing business where community infrastructure, like our orphan highways are presented with an argument of scarcity and mega highways are met with substantial investment. So my question kind of based on that is, is there any context you want to add to that? Because obviously I'm not providing the full, background and context and there's a lot of minutia and challenges in transportation but can you what's he your covers, he covers future, his face for our listeners <laughs> for, for the future of the metro region transportation and
1: this isn't just a question about i-5 bridge but it's also kind of a question about the i-5 bridge yeah no for sure oh man like i just you know when when you have quotes that you feel like will haunt you do you feel like that will haunt you no, I, no, not really. I, I don't know. I try to live a life in terms of like, you know what? I said what I said. I believe what I believe. I feel what I feel, you know, love me or hate yeah. me. Well. I think that, and I, it's kind of uh, not ironic now because maybe it's ironic, maybe not, but I'm the chair of JPAC, which is the Joint Policy Advisory Committee on Transportation, which fulfills the Portland metro area's federal role in transportation and planning, you know, basically all the big projects happening in the region highway projects, transit projects that need to be approved by JPACT in order to happen. And so obviously now here I am with these big projects. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, I I really thought through that statement for a long time and I really gave myself, you know, not to be again, like I just, sometimes I struggle with this thing of just being purely dogmatic and just really not willing to have a conversation. That point to me was... And and I still really feel this, you know, when it comes to transportation resources, like the political will exists to do big highway projects, the same political will doesn't exist to do orphan highways and orphan highways listeners are roads owned by the same agency that owns the highways. And so it's just a matter of where by the Department of Transportation by ODOT and for me, it's like, okay, you know, if we're going to, if our region is going to be investing in our infrastructure, then we need to put together a really solid plan for how we're also going to invest in the infrastructure within our urban form. And I think that like, I think people feel that. I think people resent growth because they're like, well, we're growing so much. We're doing so much infill, but we're not improving our internal infrastructure to move differently. So everyone just kind of feels like they get all the downsides of, of growth, I guess you could say. but. Yeah, I, you know, I, I've gone on record too, to say that, like, I do believe in the I-5 bridge and I believe that we need the I-5 bridge, but the, the kind of the, the elephant in the room here is the crux of tolling and the role that tolling and that revenue can play in our region. And ultimately that statement was pointed at this big conversation that where our state is now having around, well, we're going to raise all these tolls to invest in these projects. And if we're gonna actually do that, then we need to be able to invest in the infrastructure that our community uses to get to the grocery store as well. And that's, you know, that's my plight. That's my plight. Well, Reagan has told me that he is a big fan of tolling. So you have an ally. Uh, in- well, you know
0: what? Like, I just say, <laughs> no, actually, like- I've read, Ben, that tolling is a
2: regressive tax and Republicans hate regressive taxes. So mm-hmm. we're here to say no tolling. So then I mean, you can be out there on your own for tolling.
1: I got to say, y'all, like I I don't think any- anyone likes tolling. You know, I think totally. Totally. I mean, I know I, I, I don't want to pay a toll. I know people don't want to pay a toll. And I think just the in terms of more of you know the the philosophical conversation, if if we talk about it through that sense, you know, no one wants a new fee, no one wants a new tax. I think instead what we need to do is talk about, well, what are the benefits of this? And then ultimately those benefits need to outweigh the very clear pain that a new fee costs and causes on the world. And that is actively like, you know, we're, all, I feel like municipal leaders in Clackamas County and in South Washington County, like you've been, I mean, in the trenches right now where that that's where the new, that the first new toll is slated to come out in I 205 and people aren't happy right now because of the well, decision
0: being made. I mean, I'm really very few elected officials regularly talk about orphan highways and I Reagan knows how much I care about this. Like And not speaking as a legislator, literally speaking as a person who lives in Tigard Hall Boulevard Mm -hmm. is a disaster. It is a state-owned highway that is in a state of disrepair. There are no sidewalks in a lot of places. There's no lighting. There's no crosswalks. It's not a safe corridor. A woman was killed last year just walking across the street with her elderly mom. Our lowest income and most diverse elementary school in Tigard is right along the highway and kids have to walk along it or across it to get there. And to your point, there's all this energy (laughs) and political capital being spent on these really big projects, which I agree with you. And I don't think you're saying those aren't important projects or that they shouldn't happen. Maybe some of them you might think shouldn't happen, but (laughs) I'm not saying IBR shouldn't happen at all. But I am saying like for people who live in Tigard... I think there is a sense of frustration, like how many decades are we going to go with this thing just being ignored? And what's the human cost of that, well, negligence going to be? So yeah, like that tolling, like where does tolling fall in that conversation, right? Like t- I agree with Reagan. I think it is a regressive tax. I think poor people who have to commute to work are going to have to pay the toll. That doesn't seem fair to me. And we've um, priced
1: people out, you know, we've priced poor people out to live farther that need to, like to drive 100%. into where the jobs are. You know, it's just like, yeah. It's a, it's a head scratcher, you know, and, and, and can I, like, I also want to, I, I like resetting kind of conversations too. So yeah, this is kind of how I see the polling situation right now, independent of, you know, stuff happening in Salem, independent of stuff happening in those community meetings. I'm just kind of looking at this in terms of like direction of the Portland Metro area. So it, I feel like we have two paths, right? Like one, it happens, one, it doesn't. If it doesn't happen, I think like, well, these projects all, like they all die. There's just, there's no way we pay for them, which is a cost to whatever groups have that interest in getting those projects built. But I also think it sends a signal to the rest of the country. Oh, there goes Portland again, dysfunctional, can't figure anything out. They can't do big projects. You know, they can't work together. That's just Portland being dysfunctional and we lose a decade of asset-based narrative that we could otherwise be building. Maybe that's a convenient thing that I'm kind of saying to then say, but if it does happen, you know, then we obviously have the opportunity to be on the flip side of that. And then hopefully we get to build the largest projects in the history of the state money-wise, create a ton of jobs. And hopefully in that time, we're also investing in the urban arterials that those corridors are uh, diverting traffic to. But for me, you know, I think, I really don't want to be on that no side for just the hit it would give to voters, even more so for local government and our ability to fix things. Again, tolling is not an easy concept. It's not an easy mechanism. It's not an easy tool at all. And I don't pretend that it is. And Reagan, with a lot of the things that you've said, I'm like, yeah, I know. You're right. You're right. But I mean, at this point, I'm here holding the scenarios in my hand. And I just, I don't know what the alternative is that we we have to succeed. Well, we
0: told you we hoped this would be a 30-minute conversation and we are an hour later. So <laughs> first, our apologies for that. But this was really fun. This was one of my favorite conversations we've had in a while. So Juan, thank you for coming on the podcast. And if there are listeners who are interested in learning more about you or potentially getting in touch with you, where would you direct them?
1: You know, just uh, I'm, I'm sure your listeners are well-versed in the interwebs. <laughs> Google, Google you. <laughs> Juan Carlos Gonzalez, Oregon, or anything of that kind. I'm on all the socials except for TikTok for some reason. I've never gotten around to it. But yeah, feel free to find me. You know, I'm accessible. I'm on Twitter all the time. It's toxic trait. But i <laughs> that you guys had me here. And just one, can I ask y'all a quick question?
0: Yeah, you got it. Let's do so it.
1: Before we started the recording, we were talking about The Incredibles. And we're, <laughs> we're talking about Buddy. Do you remember his anti-villain name without looking it up?
0: That is a deep cut, and I'm out immediately. Reagan might have you, a chance.
2: You mean Syndrome?
1: Syndrome! Wow. Syndrome. Wow. All right, All right. <laughs> well done. That's it. This is an A-plus podcast. <laughs> Only
0: solidifying Reagan's reputation as a nerd. I think that's what that just did. Please
2: feel free to have me on again to talk about Star Wars trivia (laughs) or Marvel trivia. I'm right here. I'm I'm a fully owned subsidiary of the Walt Disney Corporation, sir.
0: (laughs) Uh, We are going to end it here before it gets any worse. Uh, Thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you next week.